This episode is brought to you by Art of Problem Solving, providing schools with the mathematics curriculum and courses to raise the level of instruction in grades 2 through 12. Stay tuned later in this episode to learn about Beast Academy, a full math curriculum for grades 2 through 5. Welcome to Transformative Principle, where you learn how to be a leader and not just a manager of a to-do list. I am your host, Jethro Jones. You can find me on Twitter at Jethro Jones. Your to-do list is a hungry monster that is never satisfied. For the last year and a half, I've helped principals get awards, get promoted, and find the time to do the work that really matters. I recently opened a new mastermind slot. Schedule a call with me and let's overcome the stressed and isolated principal position together. Go to the show notes for this episode at transformativeprincipal.org and click schedule a call with Jethro. Welcome to Transformative Principal. This is a special episode today, and I am excited to have Will Parker join me. We're going to release this on both of our podcasts, and I hope that you enjoy this little Q&A. We're going to answer three questions today. The first one is what to do when your teachers give you the cold shoulder when you try to introduce new ways of teaching. Number two, how do you make sure that students who struggle don't feel embarrassed or ashamed that they aren't working with their peers? And number three, how can you measure SEL success? Will Parker hosts the Principal Matters podcast, and I hope you take a moment to listen to that as well. Thank you so much for listening to Transformative Principal today. And here is our Q&A on these three questions. Hi, Principal Matters listeners. Thanks for listening this week to my conversations with Jethro Jones as we answer questions from listeners. Jethro, it's so exciting to be with you again And I think we're just going to jump right in to these questions. Let's do it. Yeah. Well, before we do, I just have to ask you, Jethro, how how are things going in Alaska? Uh, Alaska is fantastic. Life is good. I am uh, currently recovering from foot surgery, so I'm not on the heavy narcotics. So if I say something crazy, I will blame it on the pain medicine. All right. (laughs) Oh, that's great. Well, Oklahoma schools are well underway. And I have the privilege in the work that I do with our Principals Association of of being all over the state of Oklahoma, but I office in Oklahoma City, but I also office close to home. And this year, I'm sharing office space in the same building that my youngest son is in. So it's been a lot of fun to watch school start. And I know that both of us get questions from listeners. And so thank you so much for joining together today so that we can kind of pool our resources as we answer these questions, because with a lot of the experience that I've had in secondary and a lot of the experience that you've had in elementary, it's so fun to put our minds together mm-hmm. and just reflect on how we would respond if we were sitting down for coffee with the, with a principal listener or a school leader. And here's the first question. My teachers give me the cold shoulder when I try to introduce them to new ways of teaching. What should I do? So you want to start there, Jethro? Yeah. So this one is tough because there's something there that you're not seeing that's making them give you the cold shoulder. And so mm-hmm. before before I go try to introduce new ways of teaching to people, I want to start out with where, you know, finding out where they want to grow and identifying what they're doing well already and praise that first and say, you're doing this really well. How can I help you? And take that as my approach. The real challenge when you try to push something new onto them is that 
they feel like you're telling them that what they've been doing their whole entire career is wrong. And trust me, nobody likes that. It doesn't feel good. And, and so that's a difficult area where you've got to maneuver into that appropriately, especially if you're a brand new principal to that building or a brand new principal yourself. Mm-hmm. I think you and I have both been in those situations where we are in a room with someone who's well-meaning, who may be trying to introduce to a group of teachers or a staff some innovative ideas or a new direction. And if in the way they communicate it will often be the way that it's received. And so if they're communicating it in a way that this is the way you should do it, because I'm assuming you're doing it wrong, then you're going to immediately have closure. Most people in that room are going to put up barriers because they feel like you've just judged them. Whereas if that person who's presenting is that is coming from the perspective of, I'm in this with you and I know the struggles that it takes in the classroom to get to help students to stay engaged. And so let's share some of the ideas together that would help us understand how to better reach children. And so some of those happen through sharing best practices. But I think I think you're right, Jethro. It, all, it first begins with relationship. And so I love it that you pointed out, first of all, how can you know your teachers well enough to know where their strengths are first? So celebrate their strengths so that when you do introduce something new to them, they know you already believe in them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I had one teacher who, well, actually, I've had a teacher at every school that I've been at who has, we've gotten to the point where they know that I trust them and know they do good work, that they ask for me to come and observe them when they're doing something new that is totally different. And that, well, I think is where the the real power is, because instead of them being afraid that I'm going to be critical or harsh about, you know, how they're doing something, they instead know that I'm there to support them and be excited for them. And the challenging part is when somebody's not doing good work, it's really hard to support them. But when they are doing good work, it's really easy to support them. And so when somebody, you know, I'll share this one story of a teacher who was a second or third year teacher, and she was just trying really hard. She still wasn't tenured, and she was doing really good work. She invited me in to do a formal observation that would, you know, determine whether or not we were going to hire her again next year, invited me into a brand new lesson she was doing instead of doing a dog and pony show she did this totally brand new thing and she totally bombed and it was awful she did not do a great job but the thing is is by using the uh it wasn't the danielson or marzano framework at that time it was our own individual one by using the framework we were able to show that even though her lesson totally stunk she was doing the right things that she needed to and it just wasn't clicking and it wasn't like a perfect score, but we were able to get really good feedback and she was able to feel like, oh, you know what? I can actually do this. And, you know, she moved on and and became a wonderful, wonderful teacher after that because she was always looking for that feedback. And so it wasn't me trying to push new ways of teaching onto her. It was us working together in a collaborative environment to be able to make it so that she could do innovative teaching and then we could celebrate that together. Yeah, I love that. So let's deconstruct that for just a minute for that principal who's asking, you know, how do I work with teachers so they don't give me the cold shoulder? Jethro's example is such a good example of a leader whose teachers trust him enough that they're asking him to come in and provide feedback when they're trying something innovative. And there's a culture of acceptance for failure, which means that even if they don't perform well, which you're actually going to expect when someone's doing something new for the first time that it's going to need to be improved. 
how do you have a culture where you can have trial and error and step back in the next day? And that's one of the best things about our profession, Jethro, is, is teaching allows you every day to step in with a fresh start. You know, if this, if this lesson did not go well the day before or the last time you tried it, you have an opportunity to reflect, to recalibrate and try again. And so how do we create cultures like that? And some other suggestions I would give too to the principal who feels like his teachers are giving a cold shoulder is don't be the person that is leading all the ideas for innovative new approaches in your school. Find other people within your team who are hungry for innovation or hungry for new learning or have creative ideas and allow them to model for others. Let teachers see teachers teach. Let, you know, if that means hiring a a sub to cover classes so that a teacher can get out and spend a day watching other teachers, or if that means encouraging teachers to spend time in each other's classrooms or co-teaching together, but allow teachers to spend time with other teachers. And then when you do see good learning happening or innovative learning happening, how are you celebrating it so that you're showcasing it to others, you're highlighting it to teachers, other teachers within the building so that that teacher feels empowered and celebrated and affirmed for the the work that they're doing. Yeah. And, and here's the thing, Will, when you start letting people fly and do their thing and you are celebrating that innovation, they just take off. You know, you don't have to like put an upper limit on someone and they'll go and do just these amazing things. And, and that happens in every school that I go to where these teachers are doing way more innovative things than I would have ever thought because we've built that culture of it's okay to go do these things and you don't have to feel like you're going to get in trouble for trying something different. And one teacher at my last school, she just told me, you know, I, I love working with you because I feel like I can ask for permission and get feedback before I do it and not just ask for forgiveness all the time. And, you know, for her, she was really innovative and was always doing something different and just loved the opportunity to be able to do something unique and innovative for her kids that really helped them connect with the content and do something that was engaging to them. And it it was just exciting. Well, and I feel like I need to say this again. We've touched on this, but I feel like I need to be more, to be clearer. If your teachers see you modeling the kind of behavior that you expect from them, that's inspiring. If you're simply telling them ideas or things that they should be trying in their rooms or with their students or in learning, that's not nearly as motivating as you actually demonstrating it for them. So when you have staff meetings or faculty meetings or you're doing PD days, you need to be engaged in learning. You need to be receiving learning, but you also need to be courageous to model some of the things that you're hoping to see. So even in the work that I do now, Jethro, when I'm presenting to other leaders or I'm doing new principals trainings or I was at a graduate class a couple of weeks ago and I step into that setting, it may not even be my classroom but I immediately begin to model the kinds of things in that setting that I want good teachers to model. So I'll give you an example. A couple of weeks ago, I was in a graduate level course with some doctoral students. They were all my age or older. And when I stepped in the room, I noticed that they were all spread out. You know how people do in graduate mm-hmm. classes in corners of the room, set up with all their technology, and they were waiting for a lecture. So guess what I did? I introduced myself to every person in the room by name, shook their hands, learned their names, wrote their names on the board, wrote my name on the board, and then invited all of them to move up to the first two rows, restructured the seating. And then I began with inquiry-based questions. I began asking them questions for feedback before I ever got into the content of what I was going to talk about. So that by the time I got into the content, we had established rapport. 
I had established expectations. I had moved the structure of the room. I had introduced myself to my students. I knew all of their names. And I finally stopped about 25, 30 minutes in and just said, can I stop for a second and reflect with you? What did I do when I came in the room? And they began to say back to me, all those things. You learned our names. You told us stories about yourself. You connected with us. You built a relationship. And so if we're not modeling the things that we want teachers to do, we can't expect them to do it unless if we're not going to do it too. Yeah. Yeah. That is so powerful. You know, the power in modeling and helping people see that is it's really powerful. And, and you can't overstate that enough because when you model, you say, I'm not afraid to do this and you don't need to be afraid to do it either. And, mm-hmm. and that can be really powerful. Now, this this next question came from uh, the work that I've been doing up here in Fairbanks with a K-12 magnet school where we would be focused on competency-based education. And so this one is a little bit different, but I think that it's applicable regardless of what you're doing because you're always going to have kids that are ahead and behind. So the question is, yeah. how do you make sure that students who struggle don't feel embarrassed or ashamed that they aren't working at the same level as their peers? And so what are your thoughts on, on how to answer that question? Wow. That's a really great question because I know that you guys do a lot of competency-based instruction, a lot of standards-based instruction, Jethro, and I, and I'll just be completely transparent. I understand the power of standards-based instruction and competency-based instruction, but in my practice as a former teacher and principal, we talked about standards-based, but we didn't, it, our, our reality was, I don't feel ever embedded in our practice. And so I have to speak to this from the perspective of an of a former instructor who knew that kids were all in different areas because I didn't have school-wide competency-based instruction, but I've practiced within my classroom some of the things that I think are helpful for students. And let me just speak from the secondary level. I know for for me when when I'm working with students that are on different levels, and I'll start here. I know you may have completely different perspectives on this. But one of the things that's helpful for me is to make sure that I have provided for students a guideline or a rubric for where I want them to grow. And so I'm just going to use an example from my my background. I was a language arts teacher. So if I'm teaching writing competencies to, to children, I'm not going to just say, I want you to write a paragraph and then I'm just going to grade it for spelling and punctuation. I'm going to provide them some specific areas, maybe five or six things that I want them working on as they become good writers. That might be voice, that might be organization, that might be content, it might be tone, it might be structure, punctuation, and spelling. But with each of those areas that I've identified, I'm going to provide what definitions of what those look like, and I'm going to provide them a rubric showing what are examples of strengths in each of those areas. And we're going to have taken time to work through examples of those throughout our time together for that session or that unit or that school year, whatever it is. So when I have students that are in different places, instead of having them compare to one another, what I want them doing is comparing to the model. Here's the rubric. And how do I get you to look within that model of where are your strengths already, but then where are your weaknesses and where do you you want to grow? And so that's my first reflection, Jethro, is that when you're working with students, they they need strong defined expectations of where they where they are in their own growth so that they know where they need to go next. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And this is this is actually will one of the big lies that we tell ourselves in education. We like to think that all of our kids are at the same place and that because we're using the common core or we have these state tests that all kids are in the same place and that is such baloney. They are not. 
no matter where we are, they're they're just not. And this is where I get on a little bit of a high horse and I get like kind of passionate about it because one of the big complaints that I hear about personalized learning is, well, what am I going to do as a teacher when all my kids come in and they're all at different places? And it's like, your kids are already all at different places, man. Like it's already happening. So, so don't think that just because, you know, you happen to have a curriculum map that says you're going to teach these specific things that your kids aren't already ashamed and embarrassed because they're not as far ahead or they're farther behind as their peers. That already happens. And so instead of us complaining about that, let's recognize that it exists. Kids are never in the same place and that is okay. And they never will be. And so rather than thinking, oh, what are we going to do? We need to just recognize that they're already different. I mean, your example of writing was perfect. There are kids who have been writing for a long time by the time they get to your high school language arts class. And there are kids who have been avoiding writing for their whole entire lives. And that is just one of those things where you can't expect everybody to be in the same place. And they have to be different. And it happens with every single subject, every single class, every single grade. It's there. So the lie that we tell ourselves that they're already, that they are together is a bunch of baloney. They're all over the place. They always have been and they always will be. So instead of worrying about that, let's just recognize, hey, don't worry about what other people are doing. This is one of the other problems with education is we force kids to be compared to each other. They don't need to be in competition with each other. They're only in competition with themselves. How do I personally get better? That's all that really matters. We all have different gifts and abilities and strengths and weaknesses. And that's where we need to focus is in helping kids identify what their strengths are and then celebrating them and moving forward and having a positive atmosphere about what they're good at and then helping them with what they struggle with because it happens for everybody. Yeah. And I could, I could rant on this for hours. So I'll just stop right there. (laughs) Beast Academy is a comprehensive math curriculum for grades two through five designed by its creators as the math curriculum we wish we had when we were kids. It teaches kids how to think critically and understand the foundational concepts behind the math calculations they're performing. Beast Academy was created by the award-winning math experts and PhDs at Art of Problem Solving, along with art director Eric Owen, whose work includes illustrating for DC Comics. Engaging comic book-style illustrations keep kids coming back for more, even as they grapple with some of the most rigorous math problems available anywhere. Visit beastacademy.com to try a demo and find out how to bring this high quality curriculum to your school. Oh, those are such great reflections. And Jethro, you know, expectations matter. And so if you go into every learning environment frustrated that your kids aren't where you want them to be, then you're forgetting why you're a teacher. Mm -hmm. They're going to walk in not being where you want them to be. Mm -hmm. And, And yes, I know that there are teachers in situations where kids come in and they are so far below either grade level or competencies that you feel like you're having to start all over again. And I know that's even more difficult in in subjects like science and math where you're trying to build concepts on top of concepts. But if if you walk into each year frustrated by the levels of where your kids are, then you're forgetting that that's the reality of teaching is that you've got kids walking in in every level that you can imagine unless you base, unless you set up a schedule where you place your kids all on skills, which is all, you know, research shows that's not helpful either to mm-hmm. just track kids according to, you know, the highest kids with each other all the time and the lowest kids with each other all the time. That's not healthy learning either. 
but you should come in with the expectations that they need to learn and so and that you're going to help them. And so, yeah, that meant that even when I was teaching high school language arts every year, I would start off with the expectation that my kids were going to need me to bring them up to the place where I needed them to be so that we could get to that next level. Even if they were coming in, some of them possibly advanced or some of them below, it was my, it was my responsibility to help each of them grow to that, to that next level. But I also liked what you said too about it. You know, when you identify where they are good and then celebrate where they are good, then you're creating an environment, just like we talked about with the teachers, you're creating an environment where it's okay to, to fail and it's okay, it, and it's okay to, to learn and grow. I'll give you an example. You know, when I would take my students to creative writing options, you know, whether they were trying to analyze poetry and maybe create their own poems for the first time, or maybe I was showing them how to create story structure. And so I was having them write a narrative for the first time. A lot of times, especially with struggling writers, I would read their work aloud for them. And it's interesting, Jethro, because I had a, a student tell me one time, Mr. Parker, when you read, when you read my work out loud, you always make it sound better than it is. <laughs> and I smiled because I was reaching my goal, which was that most students don't realize how good their writing is. And if you provide the correct voice to it, sometimes you hear it in a way that you didn't realize. In other words, you look for those things within what they're producing that's, that's really good. They may not see how good that sentence structure was or how great that image was. But if you, if you as the teacher can pull out those moments of really good learning and then highlight that for other people, then you're, you're demonstrating back to that student that you've just recognized their growth and you're celebrating it out. And so what does that do? That, I know what it does for me when people do that. It actually inspires me to try again and not to feel like I've been told you can't do that. I've been told you can do that. Yeah, that, that piece right there, Will, of I, when somebody believes in me, then I can do more. That is so absolutely true. And, and we've all had those teachers who believed in us even when we didn't believe in ourselves. And those are the teachers they make movies about, right? And so, mm-hmm. like, that's what we need to be doing. That's what we need to be doing as principals. That's what we need to be doing as teachers. That's what we need to be doing as parents. I mean, it's just so important. People get beat up plenty. They don't need to get beat up any more than they already do. So let's just focus on the positive, the good things that they're doing, and move on from there. And we'll see um, kids do amazing things when we do that. That's for sure. Yeah. Well, and, you know, healthy competition is not a bad thing. I, I don't want people to think either that competition itself is bad in learning environments. I think if your competition is based around competency, that can be intimidating. But I think if the competition is based in terms of healthy, raise the bar, you know, encourage them to try something they've never tried before. Maybe it's memorization. Maybe, maybe they're trying to memorize something they've never tried to memorize before. And you are raising that bar up for, okay, let's, I challenge you to try this, you know, or as a class, I'm going to challenge you guys to try this. And then creating a little healthy competition where they're trying to reach that bar because they they want to be that high achiever. That that can be a good thing too, because when you when you raise that expectation for others, and you're willing to model it yourself, um, then that creates a healthy environment of of, for lack of a better word, competition. I don't I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah i I think that the the competition that I'm denouncing is the GPA competition, where there is a clear winner and a clear loser, and you know, the kind of competition that you're talking about is, Hey, 
I, and I think it's the same kind of competition that you and I and Danny Bauer and Justin Bader and Jimmy Casas and, and all these guys and gals, I didn't mention any women, but uh, Allison Apsey, for example, and Amy Fast, like we're all trying to be the best that we can. And we're not saying because I'm better, you stink, or because you're better, I stink. We're saying let's all try to get better together and work together and find ways to be better. That kind of friendly competition where you push each other to do better. That's what we need to foster because that that goes back to that Jim Rohn quote that you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with. You want that collegiality and that competition to help you be better, but you don't want it to be at the expense of relationships and people feeling good about themselves. You want it to be something that builds everybody up and helps everybody be successful. Yeah. Marlena Gross-Taylor. Marlena Gross-Taylor. Yeah. Jen Schwanke. Beth yes. Huff. I mean, we can think of a million women that Jennifer are, Gonzalez. That are yeah. yeah, that are just doing amazing work too, Jethro. Mm-hmm. And and you're right. You know, there is something healthy about push consistently pushing yourself in your own work to be better, and then modeling that for the people that you're leading and teaching too. So there's there's just something inspiring about modeling those things that you expect. And so I don't know if we've answered that question sufficiently. Or not, but but I, I think we beat that horse pretty dead. Yeah, I, I think we have. So let's move on to question three. This question is another one that came in through your readers, which is how can SEL success be measured? And for those of you that love acronyms, that social emotional learning, which is something that all of us have been talking about now for several years, which is the hearts of our kids, the emotions of our kids are just as important as the intellectual academic parts of their learning. And if we're not meeting their emotional needs, how do we expect them to be able to cognitively engage? And so, but how do you measure that? I mean, I can measure assessments, going to measure my kids' competencies, but how do we measure the success of our social emotional learning that's going on in schools? How, how would you start there, Jethro? So with this one, it really, I think, comes down to knowing and understanding your own students. And I think you're going to have some really good things to add, but first and foremost, you've got to recognize, as we've already said, Every kid is in a different place. And so we do need to have different standards for everybody. And that is really, really difficult for us because it's more work and it's more challenging. But a kid who's already resilient, they don't need more resiliency training. They need something else. A student with a trauma background needs different things than a student that doesn't have a trauma background. And so, you know, just looking in in my family So we have, you know, a mom and a dad and we support our kids and we love them. And we haven't had any major, you know, traumatic issues in our life, no child abuse or, you know, drug abuse or things like that. And so my kids don't need a lot of education around how to be, how to be resilient in those areas because we just don't have those experiences. So you know, I've got a a friend who's going through a divorce right now, and it is just tragic. And he's got a couple kids, and they're just really going through a lot of difficult things. And those kids need something much different than than what my kids are getting. I've got another friend who's in the military, and and he's just been deployed, and so his kids need something different than other kids whose parents aren't in the military. And so we need different standards for everybody. But what we really need to do is help kids self-reflect and see 
where they're at with their own social emotional state and help them identify it and work to improve it. I mean, those are my my two standard answers to that. And it's not easy because it means doing something different for everybody, which is hard for us to do in education. Yeah, it's it's a complex issue. And so there's not going to be a quick fix answer. I do want to hit on a couple of things that I think could be at least helpful to consider in terms of are your students growing in social emotional learning? If you're looking at this from the perspective of a principal and school-wide behavior, I think it's important to take a consistent look at your discipline referrals, take a consistent look at your attendance rates, and ask yourself the question, how is our focus on the social emotional learning of our kids reflected in their behavior and their consistency in being at school? Uh, or being engaged while they are here. And I know that's different everywhere you go. So I'm not trying to overgeneralize, but I do want to give a story. I have a friend who leads a high school south of Tulsa, Glenpool High School. Kim Cootie is the high school principal there. She was our principal of the year last year for Oklahoma. And one of the things that Kim's taught me that I love is she's adapted the motto of every school should create FOMO for their students, which is the acronym Fear of Missing Out. And she says, well, you know, kids have this innate FOMO when it comes to their social lives. They never want to miss out on what's going on on Instagram or Snapchat or in their, in their own social circles. Why aren't we creating a school environment where they, where they never want to miss school? In other words, not just academically rigorous expectations, but also just a culture of acceptance, celebration, love. And so she's done a lot of different things. I'll just give one example that she's implemented this year alone. And she's, by the way, seen really uh, significant decreases in discipline incidents over the past several years. She's seen increases in her attendance rates and her graduation rates because she's embraced, along with all of her teachers, this culture of loving and accepting kids. And one of the things they've added this year, in addition to lots of other things that they do, is karaoke cafeteria. So at lunchtime, not only do they have their typical, you know, lunchroom set up with food available and the time that they have with teachers out there to supervise, but they've got a stage set up with a karaoke machine and a, and a mic and a screen. And they have a teacher there that facilitates karaoke. And so those kids not only can enjoy eating, but they can get up and do some performing and their teachers jump in and perform. And last week she posted a video of her lunchtime and it was so fun to watch these kids eating and singing and just, you know, dancing and moving and just it was the, the whole atmosphere of that room was one of, of just joy. And, um, and how different is that, Jethro? than the pictures that most of us have of a high school cafeteria. And how different do you think it is with, for those students, the feel that they have at that school of who, who do you think they're going to turn to when they're going through a difficulty? Someone that they trust is, loves them or someone that they're afraid of? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And one person who does this really, really well is uh, Amy Fast at McMinnville High School in Oregon. And she you know, does these surveys with the kids and ask them like, what is going on and how, how are you doing in your life? And she makes sure that they know that the administrative team there cares about them and wants them to be as successful as possible. And so it is a really powerful way to do it. And creating that FOMO I think is, is so powerful. And I, I can't wait to hear more about Kim and what she's doing at her school, because that is that is amazing. And I think the piece that the final word on this is that you never, ever, ever 
stop learning about it. And, you know, no matter how long you do this, you still find new ways to help kids with those issues and help them figure out what they're doing. So it's, it's something that you never, you never stop learning as an adult also. And you just keep trying to find ways to help kids feel accepted and feel like they're a part of something and increase their own social emotional learning. And, you know, if you can teach them that skill, they'll be successful for the rest of their lives. Well, and in principal matters listeners, if I know a lot of you have been having conversations within your school communities about working with kids and their social emotional learning. And especially when it comes to students with trauma, it takes a lot of work to know how to, how to specifically help those students sometimes for the first time learning ways to respond and behave in healthy patterns. And that's not something that just happens because you have a happy environment. So sometimes you have to go deeper into the kind of work that you're doing with students from trauma, especially to help them be able to recalibrate the way their minds work or their emotions work so that they can function in a, in a classroom setting. And I just want to commend to you a couple of resources that Jethro and I have both shared on this before. We have both had interviews with um, a person that I think is one of the best experts in social emotional learning and trauma with with students, especially elementary age kids. And that's Barb Sorrells. And she was on your podcast, Jethro, back in episode 269. So if you want to go to transformativeprinciples.org and look up episode 269, then you're going to hear an amazing interview with Dr. Barb Sorrells. And I interviewed her on my podcast, uh, episode 137. And so either place you want to find those conversations, Dr. Sorrells also talks specifically about really distinct strategies that teachers can be using to go deep because social emotional learning is such a, is such a large general label. Um, But sometimes you've got really specific cases with kids that go much deeper than just a caring environment. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I really enjoyed uh, doing this with you and we are obviously releasing this on both of our podcasts and this has been good. I love talking with you, Will, and I thank you for for taking the time to answer these questions with me. And as always, it's a pleasure talking with you. Well, Jethro, thank you so much for adding your wisdom and value to principals with questions and principal matters listeners. Um, Jethro and I are are going to be um, meeting again soon so that we can talk about some other questions that are coming up, some specific questions that have come to us that deal with the work that you may be doing with your own children and that parents might need perspective on too. So Jethro, thank you so much. Looking forward to talking again soon. Thank you to our sponsor, Art of Problem Solving. Did you know that the award-winning students at competitions like International Math Olympiad and Math Counts routinely prepare by taking courses from Art of Problem Solving? Learn more about how to bring this rigorous, deeply engaging math curriculum to your school or district by visiting artofproblemsolving.com.